0: Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 87. As you can see from our sermon title, what we're going to be focusing on in Ephesians 4 is very similar to last week. Uh, This week, under the heading of the Catholicity of the church, the oneness of the church, the way that the church unites that which the world divides. One of the things we must remember, and I'm not going to really have time to talk about it much in the sermon, but it is very important for this, is that this is not something new with the New Testament church. It was always God's intention. From the beginning, when he called Abraham, he said, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. His intention in choosing Israel was that through Israel, he would then unite, bring salvation to all of the world. One of the most beautiful expressions of that in Israel's hope is these words from Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord registers as He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. It's the same reading as last week, but last week we focused on the first three verses. This week we focus on verses 4 through 6. Though both times, in one sense, we've been talking about all of it. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 1, with our focus this morning beginning at verse 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have sought to acknowledge by our prayer at the beginning of the service, as we will acknowledge later by our prayer after the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper, so we seek to humbly acknowledge now that all the words that are spoken as we are gathered together are not something that we have control of, but are a matter of our humbly seeking your Spirit's presence among us. We come to you tempted, hindered by all kinds of pride, this we desire to set aside, and we can only do this if you function in our hearts so that we might truly hear and receive your word, that we might be changed, shaped, formed by it, and that we might respond in faith to the promises that your word declare to us. We pray that you would cause this to be our experience through this, the preaching of your holy word, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin our time in God's word this morning, I want to remind us of a word that we ended with in our scripture reading. Well, actually, it was in the middle of our reading this morning, but that we ended with for our text last Sunday. Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Whatever we are talking about in this passage... Is something about which God's word calls us to be eager. Now, I've said this to you many times. I'll say something like this You might remember that a few years ago we looked at this passage. Now, I realize none of us remember that. I actually didn't remember that. I Googled, I didn't Google actually, that'd be weird. My sermons aren't online. I Searched, I have a database on my computer of everything I've ever written, all the notes I've ever done, and I searched for Ephesians 4. I had a vague sense that at a particular phrase I had done something. And it popped up that actually three years ago, Reformation Sunday, we looked at this passage. And one of the things we noted then was that this word eager involves the energetic exertion of energy. That this word involves purposefulness, pouring ourselves into something, that it is not something we can simply say, yes, I agree with that, and then sit back and see if it happens, but that it is challenging us to be devoting ourselves in the way of energy to the life that Paul here is describing. Well, remember from last week, what is that life? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I hope I can bring to mind right now at least what we talked about last week. The challenge of this, the calling, the, the mode of a life together that the apostle is assuming. That what the church is, is a bunch of people who are very different from each other, all jumbled together in community. That what the church is, is people with very different gifts of wisdom. Some growing in some areas, some growing in other areas, and all tempted to then judge each other because of that. That what the church is, is people from different ethnic backgrounds, very different racial backgrounds, different cultural, economic backgrounds, all thrown in together. And that, of course, is challenging, difficult. And what God's Word is here calling us to do in verse 3 is to be eager to maintain that unity. So, what do we need in order to heed that exhortation? If we're going to do what God's word here calls us to do, what do we need? Well, there are at least two things. And the two main things we need are this. We need to be encouraged by the bigness of what God is doing. All right? We need the sense that this is not, first of all, something we need to do. How did Paul say it in verse 3? Be eager to maintain what Paul is balancing there, what he's, what he's, in one sense, we'd say trying to say, because he says it in so many different ways, is there's this thing you already have that you then need to be living in terms of. There's this thing you need to do, but it's already who you are. And so the first thing we need is to be encouraged, strengthened, energized by the bigness of what God is doing. That's my first goal this morning. I, w- I hope to challenge you in some fresh ways with a a vision, a picture, a way of talking about the unity, the oneness, the catholicity of the church that hopefully will feel a little bit fresh to us. I want to challenge us in a new way, but to be encouraged by it. But what's the second thing we need? You see, whenever a theme gets really big and lofty, it is then tempting for us to put it in a book on a shelf. Wasn't that a a wonderful, lofty, academic, abstract idea we just talked about? And, you know, uh, what's the metaphor, the idiom? It goes in one ear and out the other. And the bigger, the more lofty it is, even if it's a glorious spiritual gospel truth, we could be tempted to do that. So the second thing we need is to be really specific. We need some specific challenges of what it looks like to live this way as the church. And the fact that we need both of those things is why I broke this passage into two sermons, last week and this week. Now, it's not that one sermon does one, the other does the other. I'm trying to do both, both times. What do we need? A fresh vision to encourage us of the bigness of what God is doing, and we need to get really specific. What should this look like? How do we do this? Those are our two goals this morning. We're gonna look at this in three steps. First, well, actually, first let me say the heading term is that what Paul is giving us, what he's, the picture he's painting and the life he's challenging us with, is the Catholicity of the church. The oneness, the unity, the diversity within the church. That's what he's setting before us. And we're going to look at that in three steps. First, the foundation for Catholicity. Second, the life of Catholicity. And then third, the hope of Catholicity. First, the foundation. Verses 1 through 3. What we looked at last week, we had that challenging exhortation to bear with one another in love. That told us that the church is the kind of place where you're going to need to bear with one another. So if you say, man, these people are this way. What, I mean, come on, what is going on? Paul completely anticipates that. And he says, well, here's what it means you do. You bear with one another in love. Well, now what he is doing in verse 4 he is now declaring, he's celebrating, he is beautifully announcing and painting a picture of the foundation for that. Why is this something we must do? Why is this who we are? Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. What's the word that's repeated? Seven times, actually. It's the word one. Paul goes into a celebration of oneness. And he is saying this oneness is the foundation, the basis for the life he is calling us to live. That repeating seven times has led some scholars to theorize this may have even been an already existing a creed of some kind, perhaps a hymn, something that was sung or recited that already existed, and Paul is pulling that in here. That, that could very well be. There's a beauty to it that suggests this. Let's pause on each of the ones. What is the foundation for our life together as the church? He announces that there is one body. That the church is fundamentally, in its definition, one thing. One organism. One body in Christ. One building. One structure. And that that oneness is simply an announcement of who the church is. Notice that. He's not saying, you hopefully we'll get there one day. He is saying, this is who and what the church is. He says, one spirit. Now oh, this is, actually meant to be said again as an encouragement he's saying that it is the spirit that is working in you that the spirit is the cause of this the source of this how do we know there's one body well because it is one spirit of christ that is in us and that one spirit then unites us one body one spirit just as you recall to the one hope now notice if you have your bibles open you have dashes setting off this praise that is, the grammar of it, the way it is said, suggesting this is parenthetical. Paul is, in a sense, interrupting himself. One hope. Now, we're going to talk about that hope later as a whole third point this morning, the hope of Catholicity. But notice how he inserts in the middle of this list something that is deeply personal. At this point, we're talking one Lord, one faith, one, all of this oneness. It gets really big. And with that language of one hope, he's reminding you, that as big and glorious as this is, this is your personal hope. This is what you need, what you count on, what you depend upon as part of the church of Jesus Christ. And that that one hope that is deeply personal is something we all share. One body, one spirit, one hope. Verse 5, one Lord. The word Lord here, most directly, clearly, is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the way that the New Testament uses that word in particular for Jesus Christ is deeply meaningful. It was a word used for Caesar in the Roman Empire. The word Lord was very, very commonly used. Nero Caesar, Lord of the universe, was said. We see it on ancient inscriptions. And so when Jesus is spoken of as Lord... He is spoken of that way as a way of attacking that claim of political power as being Lord. He's resisting that. It's also the word used to refer to the Lord, to God in the Old Testament scriptures. And so there is at the same time an identifying of Jesus with Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, the God of Israel. With that word, Paul pulls together all of that good news. That Jesus is the one in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has visited his people. He is the one who has opposed, resisted, conquered all of the powers of the world, who was then the Lord of the universe. And that is one. And that one Lord is therefore the foundation for the oneness of the church. It's the next one? One faith. Now, in American Christianity, we like to speak of our faith, first of all, in very private, individual terms, right? It's my faith, my individual faith, my personal faith. We like to tell a story of our faith that's very individual. And all of that is good and important. We just emphasize the personalness of one hope, meaning to suggest that sort of thing. But that is never where we start. Paul here begins with there is one faith, that we all confess one faith. That the word faith here is referring not first of all to our personal experience of having faith, but it's referring to the content of our faith. We speak of the Christian faith. And he says here that there is but one. It's one of the reasons we have to be careful of using phrases like the Reformed faith. There is one faith, the Christian faith, and we are of the Reformed tradition within that one Christian faith. Regardless of how you want to parse out those words, what is the point that Paul is emphasizing? There is one faith that we confess. And he's saying this at a time, remember there were no good old days, he's saying this at a time where Paul's letters had to make all sorts of doctrinal corrections, where he had to really confront churches for very serious, grievous errors. And so when he says one faith, he's not saying, he's not looking around and saying, isn't it great how we all agree on everything? He's saying, no, there just is one faith. And that is the foundation for our, our oneness. One baptism. That The sacrament by which we are publicly received as part of the church is one. And it is something that then unites all of us as the church. And then finally, one God and Father of all. I'm going to speak of that more when we get to our third point. But notice how he grounds the oneness of the church in the oneness of God, the oneness of the creator. And that's going to need to challenge us to think more bigly about about what all of this means. Well, what does all of it mean? God's word with that string of ones, seven of them, is saying this is the foundation for who we are as the church. It is the foundation for the life described in verses 1 through 3 for how we are to live together as the church. And this means far more than just, all right, we need to get along. It means far more than just, we should emphasize what we have in common with other Christian traditions, though that also is true. Theologians, for for centuries, for thousands of years have reflected on what this oneness of the church means, especially when we are challenged by Paul's language in verse 6 of the basis for it being that there is one God and Father of all, that God as creator is the basis. What is this Catholicity, this oneness of the church? It is the fact that we saw last week that the church is the place where that which divides the world is combined. That the lines along which the world divides itself are not honored. That the church is the place where we are able to bring together that which the world divides. Differences in age and generation, differences in culture, differences in socioeconomic status, political differences, all of these things are to be brought together in the church. It is the place that the Reformed theologian Herman Bovink emphasizes this. Catholicity, the oneness, the fullness of the church, means also the fullness of our humanity. Meaning, you don't just bring into the church the spiritual part of you, but the wholeness of what it means to be human is included in the life of the church. That all of, of our work through the week, all of culture, all of relationships, all of humanness, the wholeness of it is included. And that is what God is doing, is including that. It is the Catholicity of the church unites space, that which is divided across space. That here we are gathered for worship, knowing there are Christians on the other side of the world gathered for worship, gathered at the Lord's table at this heavenly feast, and as they gather at the Lord's table and we gather at the Lord's table, we are gathering at the same table. That the church is first of all an international community. That we gathered here, what we care about most of all and first of all is our unity with brothers and sisters all around the world speaking very different languages, very different cultural practices and the church unites that. What matters to us most is that elsewhere in the world, the same faith, the same creed is recited, the same baptism is received, the same Lord's table is being experienced. It also, as the writer J.J. J. von Allman in the 1960s wrote, it also unites space and heaven and earth. That part of the oneness, the Catholicity of the church, is that that oneness cannot be broken. So that the saints who have gone before us into heaven, we continue to experience a oneness with. In fact, the apostle in Hebrews 10 and 12 speaks of this, that we gather for worship, we gather with those who have gone ahead of us into God's presence. So that that oneness of the church is a spiritual bond in Christ that not even death can break. It is a oneness across time that we are gathered here as the church gathering into our worship things we have done already on this day, expressions of our unity with Christians who have, who, who have worshipped God centuries before us. Again, as von Allman says, the church refused to let the past slip into oblivion. That the church insists upon that unity and oneness of God's people across time and space. Throughout the timeline, heaven and earth, around the globe, all of that which divides the world is united in the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul, God's word, declares to us that that is the reality of what God is doing. It is not a dream of a future experience. It is something accomplished in Christ that he is doing and that we then get to benefit from. It's a promise that we celebrate this Catholicity, oneness, unity of the church. Now, I told you earlier there's going to be a practical part. Okay, we're going to get there. But brothers and sisters, we dare not embark upon the task of living as one body in our own strength, in our own effort. We dare not embark upon the task of living as one body in our own wisdom. What it needs to begin with is simply receiving the gospel that this is what God is doing. Building His church on the foundation of the announced promise that there is one body. You see, brothers and sisters, this gospel is what the world needs. This good news is what human beings need. All around the world are yearning for whether they know it or not. Our ability to turn against each other as humans is horrifying. Our ability to divide to do horrible things to each other. Our ability to have community fall apart because we retreat to our already existing divisions, whether they be ethnic or economic or political, whatever they may be. And we we hear in our own culture, we hear the lamenting of it and the clamoring for something that can bring unity. And whenever we seek a unifying force in this life, under the sun, apart from God, it will be an enslaving idol. It is every time. And humans, then we can despair. It's like we're caught between. We're either always just killing each other, or we're always submitting ourselves to some enslaving power that claims to be the one some politician, some leader, some empire, some nation, some constitution, some document that can just be the source of holding it together. All of it is an enslaving idol. And all of it is a yearning for this good news. That in Jesus Christ, those powers have been defeated. That there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And that one creator who loves his creation in Christ is restoring people to himself. I was reading this past week of some of the history of wars in Ethiopia. And the description of how it is seemingly so impossible to solve because it is impossible to even begin to wrap one's mind around. In one particular region, 70 different ethnic groups, all with centuries of back-and-forth violence against each other seeking justice. All of them with quite possibly a reasonable claim to justice needing to be done. And by the way, this is when this reality gets most frightening. When there are political, when there's wars, when there's things happening in the world, you're like, everyone seems to have a good argument in terms of this worldly wisdom and justice and what we can do. it, It just seems hopeless. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way. It is the only thing that can resolve that problem of justice continuing to claim vengeance. It is the only thing that can unite humans. And you see, the urgency... Well, first of all, the good news is that in the gospel, we have the good news of God's answer to that, but it's also the urgency then of our life together that we now are called as the church to be the place where the way life can be is shown to the world. And so when we insist on dividing and complaining and turning against each other in all of the very small things, what we are doing is betraying that calling to be showing the world another way. Showing the world the way humans can be united as we seek to follow Christ. All of that I want to set before you is what Paul is addressing. It's what he is announcing in the gospel. Second, that is the foundation for Catholicity. Second, the life of catholicity if all of that is true (laughs) now what now you see what I mean by the danger to let just all of that be these sort of abstract thoughts right and to kind of set it aside we have to ask What does it look like? What does it mean in our cultural time and place, our situation as a church of Jesus Christ, to live in a way that flows from this good news? To live in a way that is formed by what God has announced he is doing? To begin being more specific, I actually want to reiterate what we talked about last week. But I want to be a bit more forceful. This is so high and lofty. The gospel of Jesus Christ as the one way humans can be united, the, the, the answer to what the world for every human being yearns for is in Jesus. Now what? Well, hold on. What did Paul say was the now what? He actually just told us. He said, <laughs> verse 1 Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so what's the calling? All of this stuff we're talking about, what God is doing in the world, walk in a manner worthy of it. And what does that look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Last week, when we were describing that in much more detail, Right, All the kinds of differences that live within our congregation. Differences of disposition and personality. Differences of where we are in our Christian walk. Differences of God's gift of wisdom being given to different people in different ways at different times. We're all less wise in certain areas, more wise in other areas. And wisdom judgment calls have differences. And on the one hand, what a chaotic mess. But on the other hand, isn't it beautiful what God is doing? And the challenge in all of that then, to bear with one another. And the problem is, when we describe that, when you hear the Apostle Paul say it, when you hear me describing it, all of us are really good at thinking of someone who needs to be better about that. Some of you formed a list. Are you on that list, though? You see, all of us are so good at thinking of that pocket in the congregation, that dynamic, that thing, that way of relating, that particular thing where certain people are super foolish, we, th- we think of that one thing, and, but hold on, this is for each of us to think of ourselves. What do we need, each of us, to learn to more fully, to more, actually, what's the word we started with this morning, more eagerly? bear with one another eagerly to in that moment of wanting to pull away because of the difficulty of bearing with to say actually this is why we're together in that moment of being frustrated by the differences the age differences the economic differences the dispositional differences the the the, the way of the things you enjoy in life differences to want to then pull away and complain to say actually this is the whole point lean and lean toward it be part of it all of us are really good at thinking of someone else. Stop it. Okay? Each of us must be eagerly. The second way, I want to be a little more forceful at that point. Another thing we're really good at is we each think of, say, six things where we're like, yeah, I'm going to be better at... Uh, you know what? I, I do this. I'm bearing with patient, humility... We learn how to we can we can confront each other in a loving way, clear that we're embracing the relationship and so on. But we all have one thing, that's the exception. And you see, the danger here is that we 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 think the we all think we have something it doesn't apply to. We all have a yeah, but what about this? Every one of us has this. What we need is to let the exhortation that Paul speaks of here to actually apply most directly to the one thing that we want to carve out as the exception. The thing where we want to say, yeah, what about this? Let what Paul says here confront you where it's most difficult. Don't just carve out the space where it's easy to hear, but let it confront you where it is most difficult. What, 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 is, what is the thread through all of this? Eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3. Bearing with one another in love. Alright, another concrete expression of this that I think needs to challenge us more. And this is the generational togetherness of the church. I was, uh, the, the word I want to home in on here is one body. That there is one body in the church of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we ought to feel challenged to structure our life together, to live together in a way that shows, reflects the fact that we are one body. I was recently listening to a lecture, it was actually a conference talk by theologian Michael Horton. And he's a, a URC minister. And he was speaking on this passage, Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6. And I actually was listening to him because I wanted an example of his speaking style. That's all I was in it for, and I found this one somewhat randomly. And it was a conference, so he was very kind of professorial and staid and carefully presenting material, presenting an argument. But he got really amped up at one point. And the place where he got amped up was applying Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, to the way we structure the life of the church in our whole whole family, generational, everyone together mode of fellowship. Michael Horton was convinced that the way that the Church of Jesus Christ in North America in particular has rebelled against this vision of one body is in the way we insist upon constantly segregating and dividing up our life together within congregations. And I think most of you know what I'm talking about. This isn't just about youth programs. It's about all the different ways that we treat the church as a provider of goods and services where someone can look at the church from a distance, go to the website and say, what does this church have for me? And when they're asking, what does this church have for me? They always have a specific niche thing in mind. Is there something for the young marrieds? Is there something for the retired folks? Is there something for the youth there? Is there something for the college age kids there? Is there something for me? And we think of the church in this consumeristic we're all like divided up interest groups. We're all divided up affinity groups. And we expect the church then to provide it for us in a divided up way. Well, Dr. Horton, in confronting that, pointed specifically to Ephesians 4, saying what we need is a mode of life together as the church that in a countercultural way reflects the good news of what God's word announces here. That when God's word announces that we are one body, It is intended to call into being a mode of life that is different than what the world wants. When God's word announces one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, it is intended to call into existence a community that is united in the ways that the world is divided. Now I agree with the direction in which Dr. Horton applied those words and I think it's helpful for us as a congregation with many children and young people. I am often asked when someone knows I'm a minister or they're asking about the church they'll often ask what do you have for young people? What is your answer to that question? Our answer to the question is we well, can go to our website and you can see we have worship, we have fellowship, right? See how this goes? What do you have for young people? We have the church, and the calling of the church is to include our children and young people in that one body. Our calling as the church is to include, and this isn't just about children and young people, all of us to include everyone in the oneness of that one body, and to shape our fellowship together, our life together, our worship in a way that emphasizes the Counter cultural, not what people think they are wanting, oneness of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating to me. I, I want to get specific about this. It is fascinating to me how people will, will happily grant this one body idea, but the moment it becomes specific, we don't want it anymore. If someone asked me, you know, what, what, what does your church have for your young people? And I were to say, some of you have heard this before, okay, but there's a lot of you haven't. And I were to say, well, once a month, actually twice a month during the warm months, our young people all have dinner together at church. Right? They would say, that's amazing. That is such an awesome youth program that you have. And then if I said, plus the rest of the church is there too, right? Now what are they going to say? Well, now it's not a youth program anymore. See what we've done. It only counts if they're separated off. Why? The whole vision in the new t- the, the scriptures, old, new beginning to end, is of a radical inclusion, of a countercultural inclusion. And we, we we so easily want to simply divide out and separate out. What our children need for their eternal spiritual good is inclusion in the one body. If someone said, What do you have for your young people? I said, Well, about twice a year, our high schoolers all do a work project together where they do some work at church, they do some work in the homes of people in the church who need help, and they do some work out in the community, they would say, that is such an awesome youth service project thing that your church has. And then if I said, oh, and the rest of the congregation's invited too, and it's the deacons who lead it, now it doesn't count anymore. Why? The deacon work day just is our youth ministry. It is our youth service project. Fellowship time just is our inclusion of youth in fellowship. And what are we seeking to do? We're seeking to do it in a way that reflects this countercultural language of one body, the way Paul speaks here. And all the more as reformed churches, our theme of the covenant and baptism emphasizing the inclusion of children means this all the more. But you can even, if you wanted to, set that aside. And just the language of one body means we ought to live this way together. Brothers and sisters, you are one body. So you say, who, who, what, what, what is our singles ministry in this church? You are, you are, every one of you, you are our singles ministry. What is our ministry to the elderly in this church? You are, every single one of you. What's our ministry to the youth? You are, every, you see how this goes. We are all one body together called to love and serve and fellowship with each other as the one church of Jesus Christ. The problem with all of that is it requires, if we're going to do that, it requires the life Paul describes here of bearing with one another in love, humility and gentleness. That mode of life together challenges us truly to be eager to do what the Apostle Paul says here. And we need to let that challenge confront us at the places where we're most tempted to carve out exceptions. This life is what the world needs now at that moment though it starts to feel all just miserably difficult again doesn't it and so we need finally this is our conclusion the hope of catholicity this way i'm simply wanting to highlight that parenthetical phrase at the end of verse four just as you were called to the one hope You see, on the one hand, we're saying that this is something God announces that already is the case, and this is true, but he also sets before us a future where it will be perfectly experienced in perfect wholeness, and he sets that before us as part of what we are living toward, so that it is a present reality, but also a future glory, and that one hope is what we are called to. And then, at the end of the passage, in verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul here, we're asking, how can we do this? This sounds so difficult. How can we embrace this life together as the church of Jesus Christ? It is based on this. This is who God is, that he is one. And the really thrilling part of this verse is that when he says all, he actually means all of creation. He doesn't just mean everyone in the church. He means all of created reality. So that our efforts to live as one body are The beginning expression showing the world of what the one creator is doing in restoring all things of his good creation. Now, why are we so sure all means all? Ephesians 1 verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1 verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Ephesians 3 verse 9, God who created all things. Ephesians 3 verse 14, the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Paul's theme throughout has been all of creation, all of humanity, all of reality. God is God of all of it for he is the creator. And what we are doing in the church is we get to, as the church, give an expression of that. And what I want to encourage you with in the way of hopefulness is that this ought to make us bold and optimistic and confident and hopeful as we seek to do this as a witness. To trust that every human being is God's creature made in God's image. That every human being is able to hear God's voice as the Spirit works. That every human being desires this life as to their being a creature, that this is what they were made for to live toward. The Reformed theologian Herman Boving says it this way, "...the church is not bound to a land or a people, to a time or a place, to any given generation, to money and property. It is independent of all earthly distinctions and contrasts. It brings the gospel to all creatures, and that gospel is always and only the gospel." a joyous tiding which is suitable and necessary for all people in all times, under all circumstances, for all conditions. See what Bobbing is saying? This gives us confidence that the gospel is for all. Every human in every circumstance, every cultural time and place, this is good news for all. And then this note he ends with, the kingdom of God is in opposition to nothing except to sin. The kingdom, is God, the kingdom of God is for creation. It is for humanity. It is against only sin. It is against that which divides, that which destroys, that which distorts. And so this gives us a joyful, glad, positive way of relating to the culture and the world around us to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of the creator acting who created this world, who loves his world, and because he loves the world, sent his son to save This is what the Catholicity of the church means. It is for everybody. And we are confident in that and eager to have that proclaimed and to have that be lived. I know that some of you, for example, have the challenge, whether it be in the workplace, in the community, where it could be tempting to want to simply retreat and put up walls. It could be tempting to want to simply retreat to a monastery, as it were, This vision of the Catholicity of the church will not allow it. What we have is for all of humanity. There's another danger. When we are in the world, in the community, and we can encounter non-Christians, unbelievers, who are really great people in all sorts of ways, cultural expressions different than ours that seem good and wise in all sorts of ways. And if you go into the world with a worldviewism that says we have it figured out and they're all bad, this will be a challenge. It will be difficult. But this disposition of Catholicity says No. All that is a created good, we are for. All that is a created good, God is in favor of. And it is indeed, he is seeking to restore that through this gospel. We ought to expect to find all sorts of positive connection with those around us because of this Catholicity of the church of Jesus Christ. That it is the place where all can be united in Christ as the creator restores us to himself. This is what I mean by the hope of Catholicity. God in Christ is acting to restore his good creation to himself and we get to live as part of that. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this good news and we pray that you would give us this life as we seek to live faithfully as the church of Jesus Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.